This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Big one, really big. <laughs> Fantastic. Hello. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival and to this event sponsored by Hamilton and Inches. My name is Hannah Beckman, and I'm completely thrilled tonight to be talking to Ruth Jones, award winning actor, screenwriter, and producer. Woo! <laughs> That's my mum. <laughs> Ruth's hit TV show, Gavin and Stacey, which she co-wrote and starred in, won the hearts of millions of viewers, as well as a BAFTA Award, a British Comedy Award, and a National Television Award. She starred in an impressively eclectic range of TV shows and recently concluded the sixth and final series of her much-loved TV series, Stella. Oh, Stella fans, yay! <laughs> and now she adds novelist to her impressive list of achievements. Her debut novel, Never Greener, it's here, it's also outside Dubai, um, was published in April and in just four months has clocked up 12 weeks in the Sunday Times bestseller list, including four weeks at number one, and has so far sold over 60,000 copies in the UK. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> I'm delighted that she's here tonight to talk about a new novel and her career to date. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you, Hannah. Um, that is an impressive list of stats for any novel, let alone a debut novel. I mean, how does it feel four months into being a published author? Well, I was quite shocked when I heard how many books had been sold. As I knew there were, that it had sold a few. You know, I, did, I was told kind you, of You knew you were number week. one. Yes, I didn't, know, I didn't know it was four weeks, I thought it was three, so that's another thing that's cheered me up. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, getting into the top ten was like, uh, I just thought if I can just get into the top ten, that'll be great. But obviously then, going to number one was blooming marvellous. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, it, the thing is, it's been such a gorgeous journey. It's been so different from any other work I've done, writing a novel. I've absolutely, genuinely loved every minute of it. The, the, even, you know, getting a, my, the, the edit back from my first draft and the, the real kind of nuts and bolts work of writing a novel, I've just absolutely loved it. I think partly because you don't have the same restrictions as you do with writing for TV. You don't have to write to a certain time slot, you don't have to write to the commercial breaks, um, and so you have that, you have a, a greater level of freedom. Um, and I've just loved being inside the heads of the characters, I think that's, that's been the main joy for me. But obviously you've launched lots of TV shows, but you know, doing a TV show is a collaborative affair, writing a novel is very much your thing, your baby, has it felt much more exposing? Um, I guess so, because Oh, that's the tap dancing <laughs> class that's going on next door. Um, yeah, I suppose it's more exposing because you, you just feel it's all on you. Uh, whereas when you're writing something for TV, you collaborate with a co-writer, as in, in the case of Gavin and Stacey, or um, 
Am I making this noise? No, no, no. it's the sound check <laughs> elsewhere. <laughs> it's my heart racing. Um, you, you collaborate with another writer uh, or, or with the director of the TV series or the producer or, you know, and, and also it's an ever-changing process. So you can be up and running with filming, you can have your filming schedule and then you find out Tuesday morning when you're supposed to be filming the scene in the museum that actually there's been a bomb scare and we can't use the museum anymore so we have to change it to Cardiff Castle. That's never happened, but I'm just giving you <laughs> a general idea. Um, so you, and then, of course, you'd have to change the script there and then. So obviously with a book, you know, you, you do the, the proof draft and um, I'm going to start dancing now. <laughs> you do the proof draft and then... And then you get this, and that's the final copy, and there's no more changes to happen there. And how did it feel when you felt, held that in your hands for the first time? Well, um, one of the things, because it was all new to me, I really wanted to go and see where it was printed. And there's a, I'm sure you will know this, good God. <laughs> <laughs> there's uh, the, 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 um, the the company that prints a lot of the books in this country is based in a village in Suffolk, is it, or Norfolk? Yeah, Suffolk. Suffolk, called Bungay. And um, so I, I was lucky enough to go along and watch it kind of coming off the press. And I thought, naively, that it was going to be like a conveyor belt, like one conveyor belt, with a little man at the end of it, with the covers, putting the covers on each one individually. And it's not like that at all. It's uh, like a huge machine. And uh, it was gobsmacking. And I loved it. And, you know, watching the whole process from the, the ink and where it's all... where it's all, I mean, I don't know all the technical terms, but watching it built up, till you get this final product. And then holding that in my hands was like, oh, that's my book, that's my book. And it was just a joy, absolute joy, I loved it. So the book is called Nevergreener. It's about regret. It's about looking back on the past through rose-tinted spectacles. For those people who haven't had a chance to read it yet, could you just tell us a little bit about the story? Yeah, sure. Um, it's, it is a relationship story. It's about Kate, who has an affair when she's 22 with a married man and it goes it ends quite horribly and then 17 years later she meets him again so it starts off in the mid 80s and then we come up to the pretty much the present day and it's all about um what what people should do and what they do do so she should have walked away and he should have walked away but they don't because if they did, there wouldn't be a story. <laughs> so um, that's pretty much what it's about. And the idea, the reason I called it Never Greener was because uh, I was trying to say, in the case of my characters, the grass isn't greener, it's not greener on the other side. It's still grass, just a different patch of it, that's all. And what made you want to explore that idea of the grass not being greener on the other side? Well, um, I should say that I kind of wrote the book by accident, in a way, because uh, originally it was a screenplay. And back in, I think it was 2002, 2003, um, I wasn't getting much acting work, and I started writing scripts, like TV scripts, because that was what I was most familiar with. And I had this idea for a screenplay, which was inspired really by... See, at that time, this is before 2004, so social media just 
you know, there was no Facebook. I mean, there was, but people didn't use it in the way that they do now. There's no Instagram, no Twitter. So people got in touch with each other via Friends Reunited. <laughs> so you all know it, don't you? We've all been there looking up Matthew Davis on who you were in primary school with. In my case, that was true. Um, but yeah, so people who had uh, friendships that they'd lost or relationships that they had when they were younger, they were able to kind of reconnect with these people through Friends Reunited. And I just thought, wouldn't it be good if, if there was a couple that had had an affair and they, they reconnected? But it's, it, without the means of, that we have these days of social media. So, um, so that's sort of what inspired the screenplay. And I wrote it as a two-part drama. Nobody was interested at all. Um, anyway, I mean, it was, I've, I've reread it, obviously, again, and it is quite naive in lots of ways. But the, the basic story was there, and I thought, I went away for a few days for a little bit of a pamper, and I thought, I'm going to try and clear my mind, and then I will look through my laptop and see if I've got any inspiration from old ideas. And I found this screenplay, and I read it again, and I thought, that might work as a novel. And so I started just as a labour of love to... Uh, try and see if it worked turning it into prose fiction and and I really enjoyed it and I would like go off and have a massage <laughs> and then I couldn't wait to get back to my room to start writing again and uh, it was just joyous I, because I suppose what I said earlier about the, the there was so much more freedom with writing it and um, I, I, yeah and I just and I, and I just loved it so that's kind of how it how it came about and what but, was inspired. But you say you sort of found this screenplay and thought, actually, that would work quite well as a novel. Had there been a burning ambition to write a novel up until that point? Had it been on the kind of wish list of things you wanted to do at some point? I think, um, I think like, really vaguely, I used to think, oh, it'd be great to write a... I mean, years ago, I had an ambition to write a TV, a TV drama that I could be in, and I achieved that. <laughs> Um, but there was also on the list was, oh, I'd love to write a film. Oh, I wonder if I could write a book. But I never really thought, um, I, you know, I'd meet people like, like Dawn French I worked with, and she'd written, I think, two novels by then. And I was like, how do you do it? She said, you could write a novel. And I was like, oh, really, though? It just seems such a different discipline. And I, and I think I had to do it, I had to find out for myself, just doing it without any pressure so, so nobody asked me to write a novel I was purely doing it to see if I could and um, after I'd written about 10,000 words I thought well I better see if it is any good because I'm sort of wasting my time if it isn't and I uh, got in touch with a couple of publishers who had been interested in my writing a, an autobiography back in the day of when Gavin and Stacey was sort of at its height and I'd never I've never really wanted to do an autobiography so they put me in touch with people that dealt with fiction and I had a couple of meetings and then I got offered, I was made an offer, but I didn't have a writing agent and I didn't know really what to do with it. So luckily I was at university with uh, Johnny Geller who is an Uber agent at Curtis Brown and I was able to literally say, oh, do you think I could come and have a chat? And it kind of went from there and he set up about 10 meetings and, and then you found yourself the subject of a 10-way publisher yeah. auction. Yeah. <laughs> yes, which was very nice. It was very messy. There were punches being <laughs> thrown. Uh, it was a terrible war. No, it was, uh, it was, a, comp it was, a, it was a huge, it was hugely complimentary because 
obviously, I thought, oh, well, it's okay. And, you know, listen, don't get me wrong. Obviously, part of you goes, oh, are they just... Are they just interested because of Gavin and Stacey? Is that, you know, I'm just being realistic. Um, but apparently not. So, uh, <laughs> in fact, one Daily Mail interviewer did say to me, um, yeah, it's all right, your book. I went, oh, thanks. But yeah, I mean, you know, like people, celebrities write books and you just think, oh, yeah, well, they've only got the deal because um, cause they're a celebrity. But yeah, yeah, it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> thanks, mate. <laughs> Um, but it's interesting you say that people had asked you to write an autobiography and you hadn't been interested because Kate, your central character in Never Greener, is an actress. And there has been some confusion on the part of some reviewers and interviewers that this therefore must be an autobiographical... Yeah, that Daily Mail <laughs> interviewer. Um, no, I, I, obviously, I, I mean, you, it's a cliche, but it's true. You write about what you know, don't you, I guess? So um, I... I know about the world of TV acting and my central character is an actress. Uh, she goes to an award ceremony. She's, you see her on set. And I really enjoyed writing about that because I was able to write, I suppose, in detail. And that's one of the things people have said. Is, oh, it's really interesting. I didn't know that that's what happened on set. So um, that, was, that, was, that was good. And, and also I've worked with a lot of actors and there's a lot of... There's a lot of neurosis. I mean, blind me, I can be neurotic. It, it, it's, there is a lot of neurosis in the world of acting, and I think I channeled that into her character. She's not... My central character is not very nice, so I hope to God people don't think it's autobiographical. Um, she's a very troubled soul. So, uh, so no, it's not, I, it's not autobiographical, but there's a lot of my experience in there. So, for example, there's a, a lot of it is set in Warwick University in the 80s, and I did go to Warwick University. Anybody here went to Warwick University? Not a single soul. <laughs> oh, yes, there is. <gasps> we Yay! have a Warwick University what, alumni. What halls were you in? Uh, Roots. Roots. Oh, well, see, that's basically... No, oh, in the 70s. OK, but Cryfield Hall was there? That was, yes. Well, that's in the book. Based on a Swedish women's open prison. <laughs> Lit it seriously is. So I used a lot of, um, a lot of my uh, experience at Warwick in there, but it, no, it's not autobiographical. And Kate, as you say, your central character is complex, she's complicated, um, she's not always likeable. Um, but she is, she's someone who's kind of trapped by her own success, isn't she? There's, she she's got the pressure of constantly having to be on constantly having to be Kate Andrews, doesn't she? There's a, there's a really beautiful scene in the cab where she just wants to be quiet mm. and this cab driver is kind of wanting to chat to her and her to be on. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, was that, was that what you wanted him to capture, this, this woman well, who is... Well, I guess, you know, uh, oh, poor me, poor me. But you, you do have a, a little bit of a thing sometimes where you, you can't just shut up and be quiet. Like, in a ta if you're in a taxi and you're on telly and the taxi driver recognises you, chances are they're going to want you to talk. And so you're in you're on a... It's a sort of a lose-lose situation because if you don't talk, then, oh, that Ruth Jones is a grumpy cow. <laughs> and if you do talk, you have to kind of, like, do go through that figure of going, what have you been in? I've seen you on something. <laughs> and you go, um... Oh, uh, Gavin, no, no, nah, never seen that. <laughs> what else? What else have you done? And you kind of like sell your soul. Um, so yeah, she's she. Kate is is always she's always on. She's always uh, 
in the public eye. She's very good at dealing with the public and um, managing. I think she knows she has her demons and she's quite good at managing them. But she is a very, very fucked up individual. <laughs> <laughs> and to what extent did that worry you when you were writing it? Because there are times when she's not likable. I mean, we've, without giving any spoilers, mm. we find out towards the end of the book why she is as troubled as she is. Um, and our sympathy hugely shifts for her. Mm. But there is a lot of talk about likability in characters and whether characters need to be likable for us to empathise with them. Yeah. How did you feel about that and Kate when you were writing her? Um, it's tricky because you sort of, like I, you know, it's that thing of wanting to be liked. Mm -hmm. And so you have to go, well, no, what's right for the character? It's not right for the character to be likable. And uh, I think possibly in the screenplay version, Kate was much harsher. I mean, the screenplay version, right? The ending is completely different. I've got a stalker in the screenplay version who stalks Kate Andrews and then breaks into a flat and then Kate comes back to the flat one day, finds her there, has a fight, beats up the stalker, gets done for GBH and goes to prison for six months. <laughs> when she comes out, she goes into Celebrity Big Brother. <laughs> That's not in the book. That's not in the book. But she was, um, she, was, <laughs> she was much more extreme and she was extremely unpleasant. So I had to bring that down in order for her to be likable because otherwise she would just be two-dimensional, nasty, evil witch character. Um, but I had a lovely email from somebody the other day, uh, who I, uh, a guy that I'd worked with, and he said, oh, I loved the book. He said, Kate drove me mad, he said, but I so understood her at the end. And I think that if, I didn't, if she didn't have that redemption, then it would maybe be a bit worrying. Yeah. But um, no, I, I, you've got to have horror, you've got to have characters that you don't like. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially, this is a kind of warts and all version of or depiction of relationships, isn't it? And is that was that your motivation in writing the book, really getting under the skin of the messiness of relationships? Um, I think it was maybe looking at how you know you can romanticise. Um, relationships and, and love stories and, and, and I'd, I wouldn't... People say to me, is it a love story? And I say, mm, no, it's a relationship story because it, it's not all, um, you know, sweetness and light by any means. So I suppose in that regard, I wanted to look at... I wanted to look at the, how egotistical people are when they, when they want somebody and, the, and that... that quite selfish drive that can be found in some relationships, especially relationships that um, are based or that are started off on, from sex and, um, and sexual attraction. And there's a lot of sex. There's a lot of sex in the book. Uh, my mother wasn't pleased. Um, but there is quite a lot of sex in, because the sex is, it is... It's not gratuitous, but it's part of the relationship between Kate and Callum. Um, and, and there's another relationship that reflects a different side to romantic relationships yeah. as well, I suppose. I mean, the, the, the sex is interesting in the book because it's not, you don't do the whole like kind of rose petals on the bed, violins playing in the background. It is very real, sometimes quite raw sex that they have. Mm. Um, did you find that difficult or embarrassing to write when you were writing it? Well, I did. And I tried... There's no cocks in there, OK? <laughs> there's, so there's no... <laughs> My friend Kerry, she said to me, oh, my God, have you got sex in there? Oh, sorry, have I offended you? Sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to. 
Um, she said, oh, no, have you got sex? And I said, yes. And she said, oh, please don't tell me there are any cocks. And I said, no, there aren't, honestly. So, but, you, of course, you have to draw that, that... There's that fine line between it being believable sex and being... Uh, you don't want it to be, like, uncomfortable. So, hopefully, I've, I've, I've kind of navigated the centre center path. But it is difficult writing sex. Mm. And also... Um, because, you do, because it can be funny, and then you end up, oh, no, I don't want to make people laugh. <laughs> I don't want them to, to you know... And I'm, I'm writing something at the moment, and that's challenging. And I'm thinking, oh, God, am I going pornographic here? Oh, I know, I'll stick a joke in. So I'm <laughs> literally kind of messing around with the, 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 the nuts and bolts, <laughs> literally the nuts and bolts of, of writing sex. So it's a challenge, yes. And uh, I have to say, I haven't done the audiobook version of this. <laughs> Mainly because I was too embarrassed, thinking that my mother might listen to it, <laughs> and I just couldn't have her hear me say those things. So, uh, so, so no, uh, lovely Sharon Small has done the audiobook, and a very good job, too. Uh, have you listened to it? The, I've listened the, to some of it, yeah. I've have listened you listened to, to the bit. sex bits? No. <laughs> <laughs> have you read the sex bits back? Uh, yes, I have actually. I have, and they're, they're fine. <laughs> no, they're fine. They're, I'm, no, I'm, I'm actually quite pleased with them. I think I've, I think I've just got the right, the right level. So, I'm not going to ask you to read a sex scene from the book because that might be going too far. But could we have a reading? Yes, absolutely. I should say as well. One of the, the other reason it was great that Sharon Small was um, reading uh, did the audiobook is because she's Scottish, and. Uh, Yay! <laughs> is there somebody from Scotland here? <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, so it was great to have her... Cause it, because it's set in... It's, a lot of it's set in Edinburgh. Yeah, yeah. A kind of fictitious Edinburgh, I have to say. Uh, some of it's in Portobello. Uh, anyone from Portobello here? Oh, so, um, in fact, some of the filthy bits are in Edinburgh. Yeah, <laughs> there's some. So, yeah, so probably you'll go. I don't remember that bench. <laughs> um, but it, yeah, so it's, it is I, because I should say actually, I, I, the reason I wanted to set it in, it's set in Edinburgh and London, and um, I, the reason I wanted, I wanted there to be a good distance between. Uh, I didn't want Kate. To, uh, to, to, for, her, for her hometown to be somewhere that she could visit quite easily. I wanted there to be big distance because I wanted it, be, it to be difficult for her to go home. That, you know, it was a choice that after the affair that she had when she was younger, she kind of didn't want to go back there. So that was very important. But also, uh, I just think Edinburgh is a really sexy city. <laughs> and uh, it's just got a lot of drama to it and passion and, and Portobello I wanted because of the, the coastline and so so that was kind of why it's set in Edinburgh but we do have a Welsh character in there <laughs> just the one um, and she is um, the wife of Callum so Cal so just for me to fill you in <laughs> Kate Andrews uh, has the affair when she's 22 she's from Portobello she has the affair with Callum Callum is married to Belinda, who's Welsh. Keep up. <laughs> He's married to Belinda. And the bit I'm going to read for you now is, um, this is... This is still back in the 80s when the affair is initially going on. 
and Belinda has had her suspicions about Callum, but she's not sure if it's just her being paranoid, uh, if she's just imagining things. So what she decides to do is to go home for the weekend to see her family, take her three kids with her, leave the kids there, then get back on the train and come back up and surprise him. And uh, she is hoping that it's all going to have been in her head. So this is, this is when she comes back. And please bear in mind, it's 1985. She watched the taxi pull away, its tyres sending rain hurtling in a perfect arc from the gutter onto the pavement. She turned to face the house, but despite the rain, she couldn't bring herself to walk up to the door because she couldn't bring herself to discover what was on the other side of it. She thought about what she'd do if she was wrong, if she put her key in the lock and went in to discover him with a Chinese takeaway on his lap, watching reruns of the Grand Prix or trying to iron his own shirt for school tomorrow. Oh, he's a teacher, by the way. <laughs> in case you thought he'd gone back to school at the age of 38, he's a teacher. She laughed at the image and then fought back tears as she prayed that that's what she would see. She knew what she'd, what she'd say to him if she found him there alone. Surprise! My parents have got the kids for a couple of days, so I thought I'd come back so we could spend some time together. How long is it since it was just you and me, Callum? Maybe she was wrong. Maybe this was all part of some postnatal paranoia. The lights were on in the front room. She could turn round now and go back, never find out. But she was wet through and cold and exhausted and shaking, and she just needed to know. She let herself in quietly. There was music coming from the kitchen. Sade was singing Smooth Operator. <laughs> it was 1985, I have got the album. <laughs> and the comforting smell of baked bread filled the hallway, welcoming her back into her own home, except Callum had never baked bread in his life. Her feet left sodden footprints on the carpet as she made her way to the kitchen, her heart pounding louder than the music. The door was slightly ajar and she could see him sitting with his back to her, lost in thought. He was alone. He was alone. She felt dizzy with relief and she wanted to sob with joy and go to him, smother him in kisses, tell him she'd been a stupid ass, but everything was fine now and couldn't they have an early night seeing as the kids were safe at her mum's? And just as she was about to call out his name, he turned and smiled. But it wasn't Belinda he was smiling at. <laughs> no. I should say that when, um, <laughs> when we were in Swansea, I'd said... To, to Hannah beforehand, I said, now look, when we're in Swansea, the, a Swansea audience is a particular type of audience, okay? I said, for a start, my Auntie Lynn is going to be there, so they will be quite vocal. And <laughs> when I read that, and then they all went, oh! <laughs> and I turned to this one lady and I said, oh, love, it's not a pantomime. <laughs> and she went, oh, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's all true. Um, 
we hear a little bit, obviously we've got that from Belinda's point of view, but unsurprisingly for a Ruth Jones novel, there is a rich ensemble cast of characters in this novel. There is Hetty. Mm. Um, uh, there are lots of like, just very lovable characters in this sphere that you have created. Would you say that kind of writing about some sort of community is, is what you like doing best? Well, I think I, I'm, I really love exploring friendships and there's a, there's a, a, a so we've got, we've got Kate uh, who's having the affair with Callum, but Kate is married to Matt. Matt went to Warwick University and um, he was supposed to hoop then. <laughs> the single hoop. <laughs> the single hoop. Matt went to Warwick University in the 80s and his best friend was called Hetty. Uh, and Hetty's a lovely character. Uh, she's just joyous, isn't she? Mm. And um, she, she has a, a, a relationship with somebody at university who she feels she has been in love with ever since. And through Friends Reunited, they, they organise um, a, a reunion and she's expecting to rekindle this relationship and it all goes horribly wrong. But that relationship, that friendship reflects... The, the main relationship that's going on. So I suppose um, I'm interested in all different kinds of, 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 of relationships, be they platonic or not, I guess. That's probably what it is. And when you write, do you have a favourite character? Well, you know, I do, I do love Kate because she's so complex and she's an utter bitch at times <laughs> and um, really deeply unpleasant, but also very... Uh, I find her quite fascinating. But Hetty is more... She's a kind of counterbalance to that. And uh, she, <laughs> she turns up on... The, you know, her, the first time we meet her, she's, it's sort of in the 80s. She meets Matt. She turns up, knocks on his door in her halls of residence with a tin of Welsh cakes and wearing a, well, um, a dirndl skirt, cowboy boots, green eyeliner and a bad perm. Uh, and that was kind of based on me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, uh, yeah, I do, I, it's nice to have um, the different kind of shades and tones to, to write. And I, I, I suppose that it's helped being an actor uh, and writing for screen to, to be able to visualise those characters and to, to differentiate them mm. and to hear that they've got a different voice. Uh, that's, yeah, that, I've really enjoyed doing that. Different kind of colours on the palette, I suppose. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that this had come out of a screenplay mm. that you had abandoned years before. Obviously, this is a novel about people revisiting an affair that they had years before, and in some senses being nostalgic for that person mm. they were before, and, and that lead, that's in part the motivation for rekindling the affair. When you went back to this screenplay, was it a different version of you, the writer, that you found? Yeah, definitely. And it's funny, actually, because... Um, I'm writing this. I'm writing my second novel at the moment, and it's a completely different experience, mainly because I don't have a screenplay to base it on. <laughs> so I've sort of started from scratch, and um, it, it obviously, as we get older, we change. And when I look at the screenplay version that was written in 2002, whenever it was, my voice is different there than it is now, and I and I. Just even reading the screenplay, I go, oh, I wouldn't do that now. Oh, I wouldn't say that now. So I, I, I think it's good. It's like when you read old diaries from when, from when you're younger. If you find old diaries and you just think, why did I think like that? 
why did I, why was I so underconfident? What on earth was the matter with me? And you just say, I wish I could have that, that confidence from having a bit more life experience and inject it back into your past, you know. Uh, but yeah, it is, it's a different, it, it's good to look back. It's, it's good. It's, it's, I don't know, just shows you, shows you how, how far you've how come. How far you've come, yes, indeed. Mm. Uh, but, but, I mean, you say about sort of like looking back on diaries and thinking, you know, finding your unconfident teenage self. But you were head girl at your school, weren't you? I was head girl, yes. What kind of head girl were you? Um, <laughs> well, for, they used to traditionally in my school, for some reason, they always made the head girl would usually be, I'm the head boy, would usually be somebody that was doing sciences. So they were going to go off and do medicine. Um, and I didn't. I did... English and history and drama. So they took a bit of a risk with me, <laughs> and I think they regretted it. <laughs> Mainly because I organised a fucking marvellous end-of-term party <laughs> when we finished our A-levels. I went home in a police van that night. <laughs> Not because I'd committed any crime, but uh, they were just very friendly police in my hometown, <laughs> and they gave me a lift. Um, but no, I think they, they thought, oh bit wild um so but no I was I loved I loved school from the age of um sort of from what was fourth year I loved school for what's years like year 10 isn't it I have no idea yeah. new money okay seven eight nine yeah the first three years of secondary school are not were not great um but from there on in after that they were good they were good fun happy days and you went to do English and drama at Warwick. Mm. Did you? I didn't. I did drama. Sorry. No, but everybody thinks I did English, and I didn't. And I wish I had. <laughs> I really do. I wish I had done it. What did you do at Warwick? Oh, there we are. <laughs> <laughs> See, you would have been head girl at Ruth's Girl. <laughs> but um, you did. I did. Dra I did drama. drama. It was actually called uh, theatre studies and dramatic arts. And, um, and, and did you have a very clear idea when you kind of were going for interviews for, for those university courses, what you wanted to do? Well, I, my parents wanted me to do a degree. And uh, at the, back then it was like, oh, you've got to have a degree to fall back on. Um, that was what the, the sort of thinking is. I'm, you know, I'm so proud. My nephew has just done his A-levels and he's going to do like a, an apprenticeship in engineering at the tech. And he said, oh, I'm not doing a degree. And I just think, good for you, <laughs> that, you know, you don't have to think it's, the, it's not the be-all and end-all, is it? Anyway, I'm, I'm going off on a massive tangent now. Um, yeah, so I, so I knew I wanted to do, to, I knew I was going to go and do a degree. I applied to universities. Back then, there were only a handful of universities that did drama degrees. Um, and um, I applied to, I think, Manchester and Birmingham. And, um, and I got an interview at Manchester... And everybody there was so right on. And I was very out of my depth. I mean, I'd hardly gone out of South Wales, really. I mean, I'd been camping in France with my family. <laughs> but that was it. It was a very non-cosmopolitan seaside town. And um, so but my dad went to Manchester, and he really wanted me to go. So I applied, got an interview, went up there. And my mind just went blank in the interview. And we'd, we'd been given these um, questionnaires to fill out beforehand uh, where you had to talk about a theatre production that you'd seen recently. And I always remember there was a girl there called Ray. And Ray wore a beret. <laughs> and um, she said, yeah, I'm going to talk about it. I've just been to see um, Caucasian Chalk Circle. I'm going to talk about that. And I'm going to talk about Brechtian techniques. And I was like... 
All oh, right. What about you? Um, I'm going to talk about cats. <laughs> I just saw it in the West End. And uh, I knew then, really, that I wasn't going to do very well at this interview. <laughs> and I went in, and they asked me various questions, and it wasn't going well. And then, bless them, they said, um, well, tell you what, Ruth, what, what, tell us about what you're reading at the moment. What, what bedtime reading are you doing? And I went, Jackie Collins, Hollywood Wives. <laughs> My poor dad, his face just dropped when I told him. So did you not get so a place at Manchester? I didn't get a place at Manchester, but Warwick, and Warwick was the only place that gave me a place because the guy that interviewed me, Clive Barker, was a massive fan of musicals. <laughs> And uh, I'd done musicals in school with me and Rob Brydon playing, you know, Sky Masterson and Adelaide in uh, Guys and Dolls and all this kind of thing. So, I, yeah, that's the only reason I got in, by the skin of my teeth. And by the time you left, did you have a career plan? No. I, I, I never thought I would be an actor. I never thought I could do it professionally. I just couldn't imagine somebody paying me to do it. For me, it was like playing. I loved it. I loved acting. I, I did 11 shows with the Drama Society at Warwick. I was, as I said, did musicals in school, did youth theatre, and it was playing. It was fun. And, um, but I never thought I would be able to do it professionally for, for some reason. And a friend of mine, who's still a friend of mine today, who became a, a very successful, well-known theatre director, Dominic Cook, he said to me, look, just apply for drama school. Oh, I applied to one drama school. And if I don't get in, then I'm not meant to do it. So I applied to Cardiff, to the Welsh College. It wasn't Royal in those days. It is now. It's the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama. And, um, and I did a year there. And uh, at the end of it, you know, it, people go, oh, did you, did you just go straight into acting? And I didn't. Nobody wanted to take me on. I did, I, uh, we did a, a showcase. There, there were agents there. They, they couldn't, weren't interested at all. And the parting words from my head of acting at the time were, um, I said, well, have you got any advice for me as I go forth into the world of acting? And he, he said, um, yeah, don't do any amateur dramatics. Great, and that was, that was his advice. So I, I, it, wasn't, it wasn't terribly easy to start off with. Uh, I, you know, you had to have an equity card back in those days, and although I did have a, a, a theatre job initially, a lovely tour that I did, it was a non-equity company, and um, you couldn't get an agent without an equity card. I mean, these days, you just get one. You just, <laughs> and if you think about it, it's membership to a union, and you think, why? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, anyway, I... I eventually got it from, uh, I got offered a job in a pantomime in Porthcawl, my hometown, uh, on the stage where I used to do school shows, and uh, it was Dick Whittington, and I played a ninja turtle. <laughs> Michelangelo. And I got my equity card from that. So it's not a very glamorous start, I have to say. And then how long was it before Fat Friends came along? Um, it was a, a, a while, I, so I, I, 89, 90, it was about, um, gosh, I didn't do Fat Friends till 2000, so it was a, I had a good 10 years grafting. Out, out in the grafting, <laughs> out in the field, worked in the benefits agency, that was joyous. I, so, <laughs> I was typing up people's illnesses every week, and I, I literally used to go home feeling ill, so... Uh, but when you left college and you were talking to your friend about sort of going to drama school and being an actor, was there a part of you then, or any part of you, that wanted to be famous? Um, not really, no. I, I, I just enjoyed... 
I wanted to do something that I was in, in you know, so when I did Marriage of Figaro, which was the first play that I did professionally, I suppose, I enjoyed it. And um, I enjoyed, I joined a, um, an improvised comedy group, uh, which Rob Bryden was in and Julia Davis. And uh, I used to just love it because we'd be playing all the time. So I never really looked, I never had that ambition to promote myself, to sort of self-promote. I mean, I, even now I'm not on Twitter or Facebook or anything or... It was funny, I did, um, Richard Cole, Reverend Richard Cole's got a, uh, a show on here, and I did, did it tonight before I came here. And um, his producer texted me afterwards and said, oh, is it all right for me to, I don't even know, what, what do you say, to tweet and to put your Twitter name Handle. down? Handle, is it? And I said, well, no, I'm, he said, I've got the real Ruth Jones, is that your Twitter name? And I went, no, I'm not on, so somebody pretends to be me. <laughs> Which I find really odd. But no, I think not... I follow that person. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not really my thing. I love the work and I love, you know, writing. I don't know, maybe now as I'm getting older, like I'll be 52 next month and I think I really enjoy, I've been writing all summer, my, my next novel, and I just love it. I love sitting there, being in the world of the book and the characters and... It's, it's such a privilege to be able to do that and to enjoy it. It's not, it doesn't feel like work at all. It really doesn't. We could carry on talking for hours, I know, but um, I don't want to be jealous. I don't, <laughs> really, um, I don't want to talk all the time. So if we could have the house lights up, um, and if there are people in the audience who have questions, there are roving mics doing the round. If you just put your hand up and wait for a microphone to come to you, that would be marvellous. There's 750 of you in here. I can't believe that nobody has a question. We have a lady right <laughs> at the front here. Hello. Hi. Um, you obviously reviewed your screenplay for this novel, but there's no humour in that. Was that a conscious decision? What was the beginning of that? Sorry, I didn't... When you reviewed your screenplay for... Oh, right, yeah. Because we know you for Gavin and Stacey... And yeah. ...for Stella, which are humorous. Um, no humour in the novel, was that deliberate? Yeah, there's, it, 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 it's funny actually because um, that's what I was saying about writing the second novel now. I feel it's, it's sort of more me in a way because it's me now and I think there is more comedy in the second novel. Um, so this, it, it wasn't so much that it was a, a conscious decision to not write write any comedy it was just true to the story I suppose and I guess there are characters that, like Hetty is can can be funny she's the I would say she's the sort of the comedy character in the, in the book but it, it certainly isn't like um you know if, if you like Gavin and Stacey don't buy the book to read it thinking oh this is gonna be a laugh it'll be set in Barry Island with a funny woman with a black wig on <laughs> um it won't be that but you're absolutely right it isn't it isn't maybe what you would expect me to write if that sort of answers your question do we have another question? I think there was one up right at the back row. Hello. Hi there. Ruth, first of all, thank you so much for Gavin and Stacey for being that writer and bonding my family through continual loops of that programme. So major, major thanks. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, I also wanted to ask, uh, when you're writing, do you start with character studies? Do you know the characters inside out before you think of the plot? Or do you start with the plot and then find out who's in there? Um, 
I think they kind of go hand in hand um, in terms of, like, I suppose with Never Greener, it was, the, in a way, the plot came first in that I thought, oh, the device will be somebody who renews a relationship from an, an old relationship. That would, that would be the one-sentence description of what the book is about. Um, and there, from there, it's like, well, what would make the most interesting dynamic? Well, what if the main character was in a certain, had a certain personality and the person she had the affair with had another, a different type of personality? So I suppose, I think it's... I don't know if I've got a, a, a specific approach. It's fairly organic, I think. And, and certainly things change as I... They changed as I was writing it. You know, even though I had the screenplay as a basic template, it, it's not really like the, the, the screenplay that much, just very loosely. Kate doesn't end up on Celebrity Big Brother. She doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a comedy, though. <laughs> yeah. um, I think there's another question over here somewhere. Yes, lady in the fourth row. Uh, thank you very much for the book. I absolutely loved it. But now that you've mentioned a second book, is there anything that you could tell us about that? <laughs> Ah. Even a little spoiler. <laughs> um, well, I don't want to say too much because even my editor hasn't uh, read what I've written yet. <laughs> uh, no, I, obviously she knows what, what it's going to be about. Um, I guess the thing that maybe is in common with, with Never Greener as well is that uh, it's about relationships. Um, but my all I will say is it's not about a... It's not, an, it's not about an affair. <laughs> I don't want to give too much away, only because it's still quite early days. But what I am really enjoying is that there are three really fantastic characters in it. I think they are juicy, well-rounded, multi-dimensional characters, and I'm really in love with them all. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes, we've got um, a lady down up here at the back. Got lots of back rows today. Just waiting for the mic. Thank you. Who do you think would play the leading characters if the, uh, if the book was televised? Who would play the leading character if it was televised? It's interesting. Um, people have said to me, oh, if it was a screenplay, then surely it will lend itself to a screenplay now as a novel. Um, but I'm not sure if it would because it's, I don't know, the time difference. You'd, because it's set in 1985, um, and, two th and we, we end up going, well, 2002, and then we go a little bit further. You'd have to get, would you get the same actor doing that, playing both time zones? Um, so I don't know. I haven't thought who could play. I mean, people have suggested people to me. And they've said, oh, I can see so-and-so playing that part. But I sort of want to keep it as a blank page, because if somebody does want to make it as a TV uh, TV um, series or whatever it would be, or a one-off, I'd like it to be a blank page, I guess. So I don't know. I tell you what, though, if, if they were casting, I'd quite like to play Belinda. <laughs> I think that would just about suit me. 50-something-year-old Welsh woman. So, uh, and I, I could have lots of Botox to play me when I'm younger. <laughs> I think there's another question. Oh, yes, there's one right by you, yes. You and James Corden were clearly a very winning combination for Gavin and Stacey. Um, w would you ever write with him again? 
Have you read my book? <laughs> Never green yeah. James isn't in that at all. No, um, sorry, I hear that, but I no. mean, you should go on the Wait, Wait show to promote it in America, at least. Say again. I said you should go on the Wait, Wait show and you can promote it. I'm not America. famous enough. <laughs> I'm not Michelle Obama. Um, sorry, what was the question? Would we write again yeah, together? Yeah, whether you write together again. Uh, well, we've never said that we wouldn't, but um, it's just geographically, we're not... Because when we wrote Gavin and Stacey, we were always in the same room. And um, so it's a bit difficult now, <laughs> unfortunately. But we've always said that we would write together, but, you know, it's, it's weird. I, I saw today on the... James, I think, got a Glamour Award recently, and... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's had several. And... Um, it's, it, somebody showed him a film, there was some question, somebody showed him a little clip from Gavin and Stacey, and all he said was, I swear to God, all he said was, oh man, great memories of that scene. Newsflash, James Corden starts rumours of Gavin and Stacey reunion. <laughs> and you think, oh yeah, James Corden said the word and? <laughs> well, and is in Gavin and Stacey, therefore there must be a reunion. No, I mean... We loved working together, and I loved working with him, and I would love to work with him again. But we just... Maybe we'll be in our 50s, 60s. He'll be in his 50s, I'll be in my 60s. Maybe we'll have to wait that long, because we just... It's too far from Cardiff. <laughs> you know, we used to be, go up and down the motorway when he was in um, Beaconsfield, and now he's a little bit too far away. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I think there's another question down here in the front row. Hi. Hello. Hi. I'm ashamed to say I've never seen Gavin and Stacey. Yes! <laughs> but I have very recently watched all six, six or seven seasons of Stella. Yes! Absolutely <laughs> amazing. Oh, and thank you. I was in mourning when it finished. Oh. I loved it. And I, my friend here has been watching it. Is there going to be any more? No, sadly. Same... <laughs> <laughs> It was so very, very good. And oh, that's very, very kind of you. Thank you very much. Um, Stella, uh, for those of you who don't know, is a series on Sky. That's, uh, we did 58 episodes, and um, it was uh, a joy. I loved it. And we were filmed in the South Wales Valleys. Um, but similarly with Gavin, to Gavin and Stacey, really, it's like, you know, you, you have to... We did three series of Gavin and Stacey, and it ended where it should have ended. And I feel the same with Stella. We, we, we nearly finished Stella after series five. And I got so irritated that people in the press were going, yeah, that's the end now. Yeah, it's ended. And I thought, well, I've never said it's ended. Let's do another series. <laughs> <laughs> so we did another, um, we did, did another six episodes. And, uh, but it was, it was lovely. It was, it's such a lovely cast and crew and the writers. But yeah, I think you have to sort of keep things moving. I think you have to. Otherwise... I don't know, you just, uh, I don't know how healthy it is to, to keep doing the same thing. Because then also it, it sort of turns into a soap. And it, there's nothing wrong with soaps, but they are a specific style, you know, and they, they, they're kept alive for a certain reason. Um, and I don't think Stella is a soap, and I don't think Gavin and Stacey is. But thank you, I'm glad you like it. So are there other TV projects in the offing, or are you very much focused on book two at I'm the moment? very into the book at the moment, and also I'm doing a play in the autumn, which I am terrified about. Um, 
It's a new play called The Nightingales, being produced by Bath, and we're doing a tiny little tour, um, Cardiff and Chichester and Malvern. And, um, so, I, and I haven't been on stage for 12 years, so it's going to be very, very scary. And so what made you decide to go back and do a play now at this point? Well, I got sent the play and by somebody who I worked with years ago and I just automatically thought, oh, well, I will be saying no to that because I don't do theatre, I just presumed. And then he emailed me again and said, oh, have you had a chance to read it? And I felt awful I hadn't read it, so I thought, oh, I'll read it and then I can just say what I thought of it and but sorry, but no thanks. And I read it and I left it. <laughs> oh, no, I really like this. So, um, so yeah, I agreed to do it. And I, I've started to try and learn my lines because I want to be ready uh, on day one. But, oh, gosh, if I forget my line, I don't know what I'm going to do. I just have to improvise, won't I? I just have to improvise. <laughs> Tell some all. jokes. It'll be yeah. fine. <laughs> um, Nevergreener is a modern morality tale. Um, what do you want readers to take away from it? Um, I suppose... Uh, I believe that as human beings we're all fallible and... Nobody's perfect and nobody's having a perfect life, uh, even though it might seem that way. It's like the adverts for Christmas when they come on telly and everybody looks like they're having this perfect <laughs> Christmas day and nobody's arguing. And, I mean, it's seriously, and I'm being funny, right? But who brings an actual golden glazed turkey <laughs> to the table and carve it at the table? How does that work? I mean, in... My mum's house, if, this, if they were all there, my brothers and my sister and all the kids and everybody, there's like 17, 18 of us, right? You've, it's basically a, you know, a fight to get some food and just hope, hope to goodness you get something put on your plate. Um, but anyway, I'm digressing. The, the, the idea of having a perfect life doesn't... It, it's not true. People, nobody's got a perfect life. Um, and so I like to think that even characters like Kate who is not very pleasant that you at least understand her and um, and maybe understand why you know putting yourself in other people's shoes is quite a good thing to do when they piss you off <laughs> um, so yeah hopefully I've done that I hope I hope so I hope people will read it and go oh god yeah I can see now where she was coming from and you have you know, you've been an you know award-winning actress, screenwriter, producer, now best-selling novelist. Is there anything left on the professional bucket list for you? <laughs> well, I'd, I'd actually like to become a registrar. Um, <laughs> I was talking to R Reverend Richard about that today. So I, I envy you that you can um, marry people. I'd quite like to do that. Um, <laughs> I'd like to... I'm, I'm, I am looking forward to writing... The, the second novel, and maybe there'll be another novel after that. Who knows? I had a little go at writing a little bit of a play, uh, but it was just a short 10-minute play for this festival, not this festival, a festival in Cardiff, and uh, that's maybe something I'd like to do. Um, and a film. I would like to write a film. Um, and I would like to work with James again at some point. Um, I, I mean, I wasn't joking. I, I, I really would like to work with him again at some point. Because we got on, on really well. I think we were a good team, you know. Um, 
So, yeah. So a film, a play, and a gay James Corden project in the future well, at some point, maybe. all of those things. But most of all, I just want to be healthy. That, that, that really, as I do think you reach these milestones, if you're lucky you to reach certain milestones in life and you just go, oh, you know, once I reached 50, I was like, oh, please let me stay healthy. And so that's my main objective at the moment is to try and... Uh, so I've knocked the fags on the head and um, I'm experimenting with giving up sugar and alcohol and just see how it goes. <laughs> and how is it going? I'm really enjoying it. You get loads more done. You get loads more done. <laughs> Ruth, we, I know we could carry on talking for hours, but um, our time is sadly up. Um, thank you so much for being everything as entertaining as I knew you would be. Now, Ruth, because this is her debut novel, because I've got 750 of you here, we can corral you all into this. Ruth is up for the first author award, a first novel award at the festival. So you can all, if you've enjoyed this evening, either go online and uh, vote, for, or vote for Ruth, or you can fill in one of these things and pop it in one of the boxes that's around. Um, and then Ruth can win, and we can all feel like winners, because we were all here tonight. <laughs> um. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much to all of you for coming. Um, Ruth will be signing copies of Nevergreener in the signing tent next door. Um, thank you to Hamilton and Inches for sponsoring the events. But for now, please just thank, join me in thanking Ruth for a marvellous event. Oh, thank you. And thank you to Ruth. <laughs> More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.